Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. So, last week, Jeff started this sermon series on Christmas and the coming of Jesus. And as I thought about, like, what do I want to preach in that series, uh, I didn't really want to preach some of the normal Christmas stories. So, what I decided to do was kind of step back a bit and talk about some of the larger context of what was happening there. So, at, at least for me, in my church upbringing, um, church history and like the history of the times was limited to like exactly what happened right there. I mean, as far as the like history was concerned, if it didn't happen in the church, it didn't happen at all. And Jesus came at exactly the right time in history. So my hope was to help make that time more real to you. Now, I don't actually know what made that the right time. So I can't tell you what made it the right time. But I think what I can do is help us understand that time better. I can put some meat on it so that for the rest of the month, as Jeff preaches, those sorts of things will make more sense. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go back in time, then I'm going to work my way forward a couple times, pointing out some things about how everything worked together. And as I do that, I want to help share the gospel as well. Now, I will tell you, uh, you all are kind of a rough crowd to preach to because there is a wide variety in what you know about theology and history and philosophy and things like that. So I think that I'm going to kind of split you. I think there'll be some of you today that are going to love this sermon, and there's some of you that are going to really struggle with being bored. Um, and I think my struggle is to not make it sound like, you know, like a college lecture. So I'd like to start with prayer, and then we'll move into the sermon. So if you join me in prayer. Father God, I pray that no matter uh, how I sound or what I say, that your name would be glorified, that as a church we would know you better, we would love you more. I pray that you would protect, uh, protect me and protect the church from any sort of heresy. Let everything I say be truth. But regardless of what I say or what I do, uh, let your name be heard. Let your glory be seen. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so before I go back in time and I work my way forward to the birth of Jesus, let's start with this. Jesus was a real person, born at a real time in history, to real parents in a real Jewish community. At the start of his gospel last week when Jeff was talking about John the Baptist, he says that Luke pointed this out by saying that that John the Baptist story happened in the days of Herod, king of Judea. And then in chapter 2, when Luke starts talking about Jesus, he says, these things happened in those days. A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, if you've been in church in a while, for a while, those things aren't new, but this is huge. I mean, this is like gigantic. There, there was an author named Dorothy Sayers back in 1938, and she said, the Christian faith is the most exciting drama that has ever staggered the imagination of man. And I think she, she is right. She is on it. And we take this idea that God was made flesh, and man, we water it down, and it just becomes normal. But this is this is amazing. The creator of everything, visible and invisible, was made flesh and came to dwell among us. And He came not just to suffer, like in the extraordinary ways that we talk about at Easter, 
but to suffer in all those like regular normal ways of life. You know, as a kid dealing with neighborhood bullies or having to deal with chores when it's still raining outside or having that giant mountain of work that you're never going to be able to feel like you've gotten done. The ex expectations of his parents, like all those just normal things of life. I'm not going to leave you a lot of time for that to sink in right now, but you should let that sink in over the week, that Jesus was made flesh for us. I mean, if you could live in paradise, would you want to come and suffer this when you had a choice? Especially if you knew your end was to be tortured, just so the people around you could know you better? Like I said, it's just, it's just amazing. So we should start with that. Real stuff that happened at a real time in history. So let's go back to the, the main part of the sermon then. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to jump all the way back to the garden, and I'm going to work my way forward. So why go back to the garden? I'm going to go back to the garden because Jesus' incarnation is a direct response to what happened in the garden. So again, if you've been here a while, you know we talk about like all of past and future history. You can wrap it up as creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And I, um, this is a good point to say, say this. I'm going to blow through a lot of stuff today, including these ideas of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, a lot of Jewish history and so forth. If I say stuff and you're like, that just doesn't, like I don't understand what he's talking about, catch me after because I would love to talk more about it. Back at the beginning in Genesis chapter 1, says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God saw everything he'd made, and behold, it was very good. So at creation, God declares everything very good. And this includes our relationship with Him. Again, um, I know those of you who've been in church for a long time have heard this story before. I'm hoping maybe you'll hear it in a slightly different way. Maybe there's some parts that can help you share it with friends and neighbors. If you've never heard any of this before, this may be kind of an eye-opener. Because when we rebelled through Adam and Eve, our rebellion broke everything. So just for a minute, forget the Bible and just ask yourself, is this world what it is meant to be? Is everything right? Am I who I am meant to be? I think we might disagree as to like what the problem is. We might disagree on how to fix it. But that fundamental thing that something is wrong, I think we all just get. I think that's why death is like it hurts us so badly. Because if the macroevolutionist is right, and death is a normal cycle of life, why, like we'll say conservative, like 6,000 years of recorded human history, why do we still mourn and hate death? It's because we were never meant to die. We were meant to live in perfect harmony with our God forever. In addition, we were made to hear our Creator God declare, well done, my good and faithful servant. But we can't because we're not. So since that day, we've never been either good or faithful on our own. So kind of as an aside, maybe, um, this explains racism and classism and high school cliques and rabid NFL or rabid uh, <laughs> World Cup fans or infighting at work, so many other things. Because we're made to hear 
well done from our Creator God. And we can't. And so because we can't, we create all these ways to compare ourselves to somebody else so that even if we're not perfect, our little internal monologue can say, nice job, well done. This is not how it was meant to be. Well, that's creation and fall, like right there in a nutshell. But right there at the start of Genesis chapter 3, God makes a promise of redemption. Because in 3.15, He tells the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Now, that seems a bit obscure, so let me be real clear. Adam and Eve and their children and their children and down through the generations heard that as a promise that someday a Savior would come that would rescue them from the mess that we've gotten ourselves into. That, right there in Genesis, is the start of a promise that would be echoed and magnified throughout thousands of years, culminating in Jesus. So let's follow that promise for just a minute. So I'm going to throw a bunch of verses at you for a little bit. Just stick with me for like three or four minutes, because what I want to do is show you over time how that promise gets repeated and echoed. So in Genesis chapter 12, God gives a series of promises to Abraham. One of those includes this, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then he renews that in Genesis 28. How was God going to bless the families of the earth? So that's not a trick question because it's right there. He says, through your offspring. But more specifically, it was through a very specific descendant of Abraham. So when Jacob a descendant of Abraham, passes on blessings to his kids, he says, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. That is a really weird thing to tell your kid, especially if your kid is not a ruler in any way. This is a prophecy that a day would come when a descendant of Judah, these things would be true. When Balaam is forced to give his oracles, Balaam declares, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. Jacob is a descendant of Abraham. And a scepter shall come out of Israel. He shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down the sons of Sheth. When King David, who is a descendant of Abraham, tried to build the temple, Nathan tells him, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, this is a good time just to mention, a lot of time in the Old Testament, prophecies have a short-term meaning, and then they have a long-term meaning. Short-term meaning, this is about Solomon, because Solomon was the offspring that rose up that took the kingdom after David. But Solomon did not have a throne that lasted forever. So this is also a prophecy of a coming king who would come from David, who would be a ruler. During the time of Israel's rebellion, prior to the fall of Jerusalem and the exile to Babylon, the prophet Isaiah declares, this one's kind of long, "'There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse.'" Jesse is the father of David, so descendant of Abraham. "'And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight will be in the fear of the Lord.'" 
He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. During the exile to Babylon, Daniel, a prophet, had this vision. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there once came like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, his kingdom that shall not be destroyed. And even post-exile, last one, the prophecies continue. This is Zechariah saying, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So, this is a snippet. This is not by far all of the prophecies of a coming king. It's really clear that at least from a Jewish standpoint, there was an expectation that God was going to send a Redeemer. You see it from Genesis down through Abraham, through the patriarchs, through the kings, through the prophets, that God would send them a rescuer. So from this bit, I want to pull out three big points real quick. First is that God is faithful. The second is, as His people, we should also be faithful. And the third is that God's timing is not our timing. So the first one I think is really obvious. God is faithful. He made a promise back in the garden, and He fulfilled it in Jesus. If I could leave you with one point, this out of those three, that would probably be it, is that God is faithful. So uh, (laughs) when I put together a sermon, I usually do a dry run for folks. And the most common feedback I get in dry runs is, yeah, but why do I care? Um, And I struggle with that because, like, how do you turn something into, like, an actionable thing? And part of that's because when I put a sermon together, what I really want is for people to leave with this overwhelming sense of awe at who God is and what He's done. And then I kind of figure you can work that out on your own, what to do with it. Um, But I know that it's also really useful to, like, figure out how how to do things with God's Word. So this next part, like, as His people, we should also be faithful, is kind of targeted there, and it's targeted to the church. As God's people, it should be our desire to reflect God and who He is. And frankly, as people who are called by His name, everything we do reflects on Him. So as God's people, we are meant to be faithful to our promises and commitments. You can take that from all sorts of places. Just take it from this story. You can take it from the ninth commandment, which we... We like to make real short and say, do not lie. Um, It's actually, do not bear false testimony against your neighbor, but the idea is there. You can take it from one of my favorite verses in all the New Testament, which is um, in Matthew from Jesus. He says, let your yes be yes and your no be no, which is actually in the context of uh, how you take an oath, or all sorts of other places. But we are meant to be people of our word. That can be really, really big things like wedding vows or work ethics. I think it comes down to little bitty things, like in many cultures, but not all, showing up when you say you'll show up. So, this would be my challenge to you. Do you reflect the faithfulness of God in your everyday life?
And then lastly, God's timing is not our timing. So, I think if you listen to those verses, you can hear the anguish of the Israelites as they're thinking, where are you? You have been making this promise for thousands of years. Where are you? Where is our King? Where is our Redeemer? I don't know what you're waiting on. You might not be waiting on anything, but I think for for some of you, for many of you perhaps, there is something in your life where you're like, where is God? When is He going to show up? He's made promises. Where is He? I don't know how He's going to answer that for you. What I do know, though, is that God is good all the time and that God is sovereign. He is in control all the time. So, my encouragement to you would be don't give up and don't lose hope. Trust in God to do what's right and open yourself up to what that might look like. And know also that you don't have to go through these trials, whatever it is, alone. Home groups are one of those places where we ought to be able to share those concerns and offer help, maybe even financial, maybe a place to live, or even maybe it's just comfort and somebody to talk to. If you're not part of a home group, I would say find another believer, somebody who can use the gospel to speak into that situation. And if you don't have that, um, grab staff, grab elder, grab me, and let us see what we can do for you. So those were three takeaways, but I did notice one other one as well, and I kind of implied it, that God doesn't always, maybe even rarely, does He answer our prayers the way we want Him to. I think that was definitely true for the Jews. So, again, if you've been in church for a while, you know this. What did they want? They wanted a military Savior. They didn't want Jesus. Why isn't a military Savior what they really needed? So, to do that, I want to go back through that story. I'm going to go through the story one more time. We're not going to start at the garden this time. We're going to start with Abraham. Um, This is kind of like story time. So, just kind of bear with me as I kind of tell you a story of the Jewish people. So, oh good, the little thing's working. Okay, so at the top of those slides, that gray thing with the blue is kind of like a timeline. So, the far left-hand side of that timeline is like 2100 B.C., the far right-hand side of the timeline is Jesus. We're going to kind of work our way up through some, some chunks here just to kind of see where we are. So the nation of Israel begins with God calling a man named Abram out of the land of Ur of the Chaldeans. God promises to make him into a great nation. But he doesn't do that in Abraham's time or his children's time or even his grandkids' time. Instead, you see God working not through a nation but through a family structure and a tribal structure. When Abraham's family moved to Egypt, eventually, they stayed there for like 430 years, they grew a huge amount, and so we say that when they left Egypt in the Exodus, we're guessing there was like a million and a half people. But there's still essentially a collection of tribes and families bound together by a religion, a shared mission, this charismatic leadership of Abraham, and of course God standing behind Abraham, you know, pillar of fire and pillar of smoke kind of stuff, right? Um, but they're not a nation. And when Abraham picks his successor, Joshua, he doesn't do it because Joshua is his kid. He does it because Joshua has the same faith. And that's important because, like, there's no attempt to start a dynasty or anything. That's important because after Joshua, we don't really see a very strong leader in Israel for a while. So Joshua leads the people into the promised land. They had been nomadic people. And when they moved into the promised land, they settled out, they spread out, and that broke a lot of the bonds that they had. Now, they still gave homage to the religious leaders. The chief priest had more authority than anybody else, 
but there's no clear central government of any kind until they ask God for a king. So roughly 1,000 B.C., the Israelite people ask God for a king, and He gives them Saul. And this is when they go from being a people to being a nation. And it doesn't really happen overnight because Saul struggles with this. It really solidifies during the time of David and even more so during the time of Solomon. That is like the highlight of Jewish history. That's where like all the callbacks are. When people are like, where do I want it to be like? I want it to be like the time of David and the time of Solomon because that's when they had power and wealth and influence and people wanted to be there. But that doesn't last because as soon as Solomon dies, there's a civil war. So we're now about 926 B.C. During the Civil War, Israel is split. So you get ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south. Those two tribes in the north are called Israel, but they quickly fall away from God, and they are invaded by the Assyrians. So the Assyrians effectively destroy those tribes. So sometimes you might hear about the lost tribes of Israel. That's because those ten tribes, they're assimilated or destroyed. They they basically lose all their cultural identity. So pretty much everybody you can find today who traces Jewish ancestry traces it back to those southern two tribes. So they called themselves Judah, and that was Judah and Benjamin. Now, they also fall into spiritual rebellion, and they get taken in captivity by the Babylonians to Babylon. But the Babylonians are defeated by the Medes and the Persians. So about 50 years after they're taken into exile, they get to return home. At least they start their return home. And what's kind of cool is they somehow kept their Jewish identity, and they picked up the name Israel, and so they're now called Israel. But what's really important is they're not allowed to keep any kind of independent rule. They are ruled by the Persians. That's basically where Israel stays for a few hundred years. There had been a return to their land, They were allowed to restart restart temple worship because the temple had been destroyed and they got to rebuild the temple, but they have no independence. Somebody's always ruling them. And what you see from that time, so there's some prophets who are preaching that time, so Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, when you read those in the Old Testament, they're the ones who are about that time, and they're basically saying, I wish it could be like it was in the times of David. And you see this promise that, hey, if if we're faithful, God will save us. Okay, so even if your Bible history is really, really good and you know all that, my guess is you don't know what happens after because we don't talk about what happens after because it's not in the Bible. So here's what happens after that. 333 B.C., Alexander of Macedon, known as Alexander the Great, starts to take over that part of the world. He begins his defeat of the Persian Empire. He is massively successful, and the whole part of that world falls under his control. But he dies like 10 years later, unexpectedly, has no name successor, huge power vacuum, and his like, whole area gets, gets carved up. Israel sits right kind of on the borderline between two of the dynasties that step up, the Ptolemaic dynasty and the Seleucid dynasty. And they end up under the control of the Ptolemies in Egypt. And this is a good thing for, Egypt, for Israel because the Ptolemies are like, yeah, we just don't care. Um, they basically left Israel alone. They're still under control, but they're allowed to do what they want, to worship the way they want, to be Jewish. That lasts for like 120 years. In 198 B.C., the Seleucids take Israel away from the Ptolemies, and it becomes controlled by the Seleucid dynasty. This is horrible for Israel, just horrible, 
because they are all about Greek culture. Greek, 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 Greek. Speak Greek, think Greek, do Greek. And the priests actually kind of want to be accepted. They actually kind of lead a Greek like revolution within Israel, which is a bad thing. But it's still not terrible until 175 B.C., when a ruler named Antiochus Epiphanes. You should name your kids Antiochus Epiphanes. That would be awesome. Um, Antiochus Epiphanes takes control, and he hates Jewish culture. Hates it. He makes it illegal by death to circumcise your kids, to have the Jewish scriptures and to read them, or to worship in the temple. Worse, in 167 B.C., he sacrifices a cow in the temple and desecrates the temple. So there had been a bunch of Jews who had been, like, not okay with everything that's happening. When that happens, they freak out and start a rebellion. And so I actually can't remember the name of the guy who started the rebellion, but his kid's name was Judah. They called him Judah Maccabee, which means Judah the hammer. It's kind of awesome. So that rebellion became known as the Maccabean Rebellion or the Maccabean Revolt. Because of a bunch of other stuff happening in Syria, they're actually able to take control and wrest the country away. And so for the first time since the exile to Babylon, Israel is an independent nation. They are self-ruled. They are self-governed. They are they're them again. That's only 160 years or so before Jesus, and it lasts for almost 100 years until in 63 B.C., the Roman general Pompey uh, invades Jerusalem, and they fall under Roman rule. All right. I think the story stuff is too cool. I think the history stuff is cool. It's not what we normally hear in church. So why am I sharing all this? Because at the time of Jesus, like when this is all happening, there are still Jews alive who can remember an independent Israel. They remember what it's like. They're incredibly resentful of being under Roman rule. There's actually, there's active fighting and guerrilla warfare happening in the time of Jesus, because there's Jews who think, hey, if the Maccabeans could do it 160 years ago, we can do it. In fact, um, if you remember your, your Jesus history, um, there's a time when Joseph takes Jesus to Egypt when he's a small kid. They want to return, and there's a comment that when he heard that Archelaus was ruling, he was afraid to go back to Jerusalem, and so they ended up going to Galilee. Well, what happened there? Like, even at that time, there had just been a revolt and Archelaus had killed 3,000 Jews in Jerusalem. So, like, there's fighting going on. Why are the Jews looking for a military leader? This is why they're looking for a military leader. Like, they want to return to the days of David. They want to return to the days of Solomon. And so, of course, all their views of a promised Messiah are wrapped up in that. So here's the question. Why didn't God send a military leader. I think it's because when you really bring it down, independence and self-rule is not what they needed. It wasn't their problem. Their problem was a fundamental separation from their creator God. And the solution to that problem demanded a crazy, unbelievable solution. God being made flesh and living among us. And that is our need. I saw a note today. I don't, even, I don't know if it's true because I don't, I don't shop. Um, but there, there was some Twitter thing I saw this morning that said, is it really true that eggs only cost $2 back in 2020? I just paid $7 this morning. Uh, like, but what we need is not 
a great leader of the Fed to protect us from a recession. What we need is not a great Democratic leader or a great Republican leader or anybody else in this world. What we need, just like they needed, is to be made right with our God. It was a few years ago, actually longer than that because time passes faster now, but um, one of my home groups was praying for a friend, actually it was a family member of somebody who was in the home group. And her life was kind of a mess. And so there was some push in the home group that says we need to pray for her to clean up her life. And I am, I am so thankful for some people in the home group who pointed out that like stopping drinking or sleeping around, and I can't remember what the issues were in her life right then, like those are good things. Those are healthy things. We should pray for people to live a healthy life. But that wasn't the problem, right? Her greatest need was to know Jesus. And that has shaped the prayers within my home group for the last like 15 years about how do we pray for people. I think we forget this sometimes. I think we get so wrapped up in the things of this world that we forget this world is not all there is. This world is like a blink of an eye and there's an eternity that comes after that. Only Jesus is going to bring peace to our hearts in this world. But, wasn't there another way? Like, couldn't he have done this a different way? In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, it says, now these things, so there had just been a description of a bunch of stuff that happened in the Old Testament. It says, when, now these things happened to them as an example, but they're written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. I think that statement applies to all of history. Everything that happened in the Old Testament. I think that at least one reason that Jesus came when he did, when that was the appropriate time, when that's the fullness of time, and not earlier, is because it took that long to clearly show that there was no form of government, no period of peace, no period of oppression, no period of peace following oppression, or oppression following peace, or a change of rulers, or like leadership by a theocracy, or leadership by a democracy, you know, I don't think they ever had a democracy, but you know, somewhere in the world, a democracy, or leadership by a dynasty, or no matter what it was, none of those things would create in the people a lasting heart for God. I think we needed time so that you and I could never say, yeah, 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 okay, there's another way. If it had just happened like this, like, then we wouldn't need Jesus because it's all been done. Right? We needed to see there was no set of circumstances that was going to cleanse them or us of sin now and forever. Even the sacrificial system that was given, all it did was cover up sin for a short period of time. That's why Hebrews points out that you have to keep sacrificing over and over and over and over just because it doesn't last. Instead, God was going to have to do something himself. He was going to have to do that work himself. He was going to have to create a new heart in us. He was going to have to atone for our sins once and for all. He was going to have to do the work to restore us to that state where things are very good. I think that's the promise of Christmas. I think as we, as we go through like the next like three or four weeks of Christmas stories, that's the promise of Christmas the chance for us to see God fulfilling a promise that he made way, way back in the garden. 
And the hope that we can again hear, be in a place where we can hear God say, well done, my good and faithful servant. So the band can come back up. I'm going to pray, um, and then we will have communion. So Father God, you are a great and an awesome God, and I thank you for who you are. I thank you for the stories that you have given us um, that teach us who we are and that teach us of our need for you. I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for your word that allows us to see your faithfulness throughout the years. I pray, God, that this Christmas, as we get wrapped up um, in good things, like seeing family, um, or traveling, or taking time off, and so many of the other things that happen at Christmas, we would remember who you are, and your gift, and the amazing fulfillment of your promise. So as we, as we take communion, um, communion here at Oak City Church is a, uh, an opportunity for you to acknowledge uh, who Jesus is and the sacrifice that he's made. Um, communion is open to everybody who is a believer. You don't have to just be a member at Oak City Church. Um, as you come up, they will say, this is the blood of Jesus shed for you, and this is the body of Jesus broken for you as a reminder of the sacrifice that Jesus has made on our behalf.